0: Happy Wednesday everyone are we are we streaming All right. and to those of you watching online there we go I want to make sure we're doing that okay so um, we are starting a new book tonight and uh, we're back in the Old Testament and I'm super excited about that um, uh, I love the New Testament and I love the old like there's no favorites I guess but um, you know the New Testament can can uh, can be kind of easy to apply because it's New Covenant principles and we are New Covenant believers. And a lot of times the Old Testament sometimes is kind of brushed over and and uh, and rushed through. But uh, until we understand the purpose of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Covenant loses value. And so I always tell people um, the whole purpose, if we could summarize the purpose of the Old Testament, it is to show us our need for a Savior. It prepares the way for Christ, and so we are uh, back in the Old Testament for Wednesday nights for the next few months. We're going to start in the book of Esther, uh, and just to give you guys an idea of how this is going to play out, um, uh, we're super excited about about PV coming back this Sunday. So this Sunday he's going to be preaching, uh, but for 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 Wednesdays in March, um, Pastor Brian and our elder at large David uh, and myself, we're all going to be kind of taking turns. Going through Esther, so um, after March, then we're hoping uh, Pastor Victor will take back over and make sure we're on the right path. So what that means is, um, as we go through Esther, you're going to have we're all going to have at least four different um, people preaching through it, and and you know four different perspectives possibly. Uh, so that's kind of neat. We're going to have uh, you know kind of a, a, a multitude of of counsel and wisdom. So I look forward to that, and hopefully we're all on the same page, more or less. But um, For tonight, what I want to do is we we are going to be in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is not very long, and a lot of us are familiar with the book of Esther. So I'm not going to take a whole lot of time in chapter 1. What I do want to do, first of all, is to set the context for us of where Esther is historically, um, in its literary context, biblically, and what theological themes we are um, we are looking for. Okay, so um, in terms of biblical context, uh, the book of Esther takes place approximately uh, 483 B.C., so almost 500 years before Jesus was born, uh, the events of Esther take place. Okay, uh, and so in your Bibles, you will notice that it goes... Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right? Uh, and as, as, as it goes chronologically, that's not, that's not how, how the events take place. It should actually be Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, because the events of Esther take place 30 to 40 years after what we read in Ezra and about 30 or 40 years before the events of Nehemiah. So in this time, um, so here's, here's like... Biblical Jewish history in a nutshell, right? And I, I never know where to start um, with this, so I'm going to start with King David, because so, we all know who King David is. Uh, so um, you guys remember King David, because we were reading about him in First and Second Samuel, right? He's, he's the first um, true king of, of, of Israel. He takes over for Saul, who was, who was a bad king. Um, God establishes his covenant with David that David will always have a descendant on the throne, right? Um, And the Davidic monarchy over the United Kingdom of Israel lasts for two generations, right? David, his son Solomon, and after Solomon, the kingdom goes into civil war, essentially, and divides, and you have the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And it's that way for four or 500 years. And after a few hundred years, the northern kingdom gets conquered and assimilated by Assyria, Um, And that's like 10 and a half of the tribes of Israel uh, are assimilated by Assyria, and they're not not lost to history in God's eyes, but uh, as far as we can record, they are essentially lost to history. That's where we have the Samaritans coming from because they're intermingling with other cultures and nations around them. But the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the tribe of Judah and half the tribe of Benjamin, uh, they last a little bit longer. And then eventually, they are conquered and taken captive by Babylon, right? And so, um, some 2 to 3 million, those are some some estimates, 2 to 3 million Jews are taken from their homeland in Judah, in the southern kingdom of Judah, and lifted out of there and taken to Babylon where they live in exile for some 70 years. Um, Eventually, Babylon itself is conquered and overthrown by the Persians, okay? Okay. And the Persians under King Cyrus uh, I, that's where Ezra begins, and King Cyrus uh, allows as many Jews as, as want to, to return to Jerusalem to build the temple. Now, an interesting historical point, um, if when you read Ezra, and he, he kind of goes through all that, because I, th- I think he's a scribe, or he was a scribe. Um, and he is like, um, he's going through all the numbers. Here are all the people from this tribe, all the people from, not really tribes, because it's just like one and a half tribes. He names them by by families and by clans. Um, And at the end of that whole list, there's less than 50,000 Jews who take up the offer to return to their home in Jerusalem. This is over 70 years after they've been taken captive into Babylon. And how many did I say most historians believe were taken captive into Babylon? Two to three million. So less than 50,000 of two to three million Jews take the offer to return home. That's like 2% or something like that, right? I'm not good at math, but um, there's a whole question, there's a whole sermon in that in itself. Um, Why would you choose to stay when you have the opportunity to return When God arranges secular events to allow you the opportunity to return, to rebuild the temple, to reinstitute temple worship, and uh, all the covenant practices that God has has called you to, why choose to stay in a foreign land? Well, probably a lot of them had gotten comfortable after 70 years. Probably a lot of them had reestablished themselves and um, didn't want to be bothered to return. Who knows why? Um, We do know that Uh, Decades later, several more return with Nehemiah. But Esther uh, is the story, not just of Esther, but of what is going on with those Jews who have decided to stay in Persia, no longer Babylon, now Persia, instead of going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So that's kind of where the story of Esther fits biblically, right? Almost 500 years before Jesus, uh, these Jews are in Persia. They're not in their homeland. They had the choice to, but they chose not to, and here we are. So, um, also, uh, I want to go over some, some historical challenges that the book of Esther faces because we read the book of Esther, and in some ways, it asks us to read it um, in a historical setting, right? We read it as, as, as actual history. These are historical events, um, and the secular historical record does not always bear out all the things that we read in the book of Esther. So I want to take a little bit of time just to kind of go over that and to um, just to kind of share with you guys um, how I reconcile that. Because a few things can shake a believer as when someone comes and points out something that, that would give them grounds to say our, our, our Bible is is unreliable, right? And so we always want to be prepared for that. We always always want to, want to be ready for those criticisms. So um, in the first chapter that we're going to be in, we're not going to meet all these people, but you guys who have read Esther before, you know that there are these these main figures in the narrative. You have Esther. You have her uncle. What's her uncle's name? Mordecai. Mordecai. Thank you. One point for Paul. Um, you, have, uh, you have the king and... And if you can pronounce his name correctly, I'll give you five points. Anyway, huh? So, so yes, yeah, so in secular history, we know that he is King Xerxes. I'll give you five points anyway. Uh, the, the, the Bible doesn't call him that, but it is the same person. Um, uh, some translations might say King Xerxes. I think the New King James, it's um, Ahasuerus, which is not actually the Hebrew pronunciation, but you guys don't want to hear me try the Hebrew pronunciation. So we're going to go with Ahasuerus. Um, so he's the only main figure in this book that we can connect with a historical figure in, in what I'm going to call secular history. Um, there's no record of Esther. There's no secular record of Mordecai. There's no secular record of Queen Vashti, who we read about in the first chapter. There's, um, there's not a very strong historical record of Haman. And so what do we do with that? What do we do when the secularist, when the biblical critic comes to us and say, you know, you can't rely on your Bible because these people that the Bible wants you to believe are real, never existed. We have detailed history of this time period and these people are not mentioned. If the events in scripture were as important as you think they are, uh, you would think they would be recorded in in Persian history or someone else who's keeping track and it's not, All right, so what do we do with that? Well, um, I want to cover that a little bit. First of all, um, I want to talk about King Ah Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, if you will. Um, He is um, kind of universally accepted as either the son or the descendant of Darius I. We read about Darius from the book of Daniel. Um, He's the one who had Daniel thrown in the lion's den and regretted it, like, right away and tried to get him out, Um, so he is... Ahasuerus is either his father or his grandfather, depending on who you believe. Um, and then uh, typically, like, if you were to do a Google search on King Xerxes, especially because of, of some modern movies, uh, you would get some images that would pop up that would be very anti-historical, not just biblically, but even in secular history. So if you've seen the movie, and this is not a recommendation, okay, so don't go home and be like Jonathan said, dude. Okay. If you've seen the movie 300... Um, or read the graphic novel. Um, that is a very fictionalized and fantasized version of a, a, an actual historical event, where the Persians were trying to invade Greece, um, and they were they weren't repelled completely, but they were they were given. Uh, eventually they were repelled completely. But um, Xerxes is in that movie, uh, but it's not a historical version of him. Don't watch that and think, oh, that's how he looked. That's the guy that married Esther? Oh, that's gross, because it is gross. Um, that's not him at all. Um, uh, he, he was not nine feet tall like that movie makes him look, and he's not, as far as we know, he's not covered in all kinds of weird piercings and things. Um, he looked like any other person, any other Persian person, except he was king. Um, And the name Ahasuerus uh, is interchangeable with Xerxes because that's also a kingly title. It's not always just a name. It's also a title. In fact, there are at least two other people in the Bible who have that same name, um, Ahasuerus. And there's one in Daniel. There's one in Ezra. um, And they could be the same person. They're probably not the same person. It's probably just um, like a kingly name that the rulers take for themselves, you know, at some point. So that's, King Ahasuerus. He is testified to by secular history. Um, Let's go to Queen Vashti. We're going to read about her in this first chapter. Um, Ahasuerus did have a wife that we read about in history, but her name was not Vashti. Uh, Her name was Amestris. Um, And from what we know about her from history, she sounds nothing like either Vashti or Esther. There's very little reason for us to believe that she's the same person. Um, so what do we do about that? Because there's no, there's no historical record of Queen Vashti. Well, um, there is this thing called the Midrash. And the Midrash, this is where we get kind of academics. If you fall asleep, I forgive you, okay? But the Midrash is basically um, a rabbinical Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. Where, and if, if, you know, um, if you know like devout Jewish religious culture, um, rabbinical testimony and 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 witness bears just as much weight as scripture itself um, so the the Midrash is this collection of rabbinical commentary on the old testament and and um, sometimes they're not just offering commentary sometimes they're also offering interpretation and even um, expanding upon things uh, and so in the Midrash uh, traditionally they say that vashti um, was the daughter of Belshazzar. If you remember Belshazzar from the book of Daniel, uh, he was a Babylonian king, the last Babylonian king. Uh, they say that, she, that Vashti was his daughter, and when Darius conquered Babylon and killed Belshazzar, he spared Vashti um, and gave her to his son Xerxes as, as wife. Um, that's an interesting theory, and that could be true. We have no reason to believe one way or the other. However, the midrash continues to go further in, depic- in, in depicting Vashti in a very unflattering light, and it's kind of—it's um, almost humorous in some ways. She's depicted in, in the midrash as being very vain, very cruel, very bitter, and um, and they say that in the story of Esther, when the king summons her to appeal or to appear before all the crowd. Um, that the reason she doesn't appear before them is because in that moment, God strikes her with a severe case of leprosy, and so she's disfigured and deformed, and that's why she does not want to appear before the crowds. Um, And there's one version of the story that goes even further to say that an angel appeared and and gave her a tail, (laughs) um, you know, deformed her even more, and different versions have a different idea other than tail, um, but I won't get into that. Uh, so that's all from the Midrash as well. So I bring that up to point out that we, got, we need to take some of those things with a grain of salt. Just because an ancient source testifies that this is what happened um, doesn't always mean it's what happened. Uh, there's always, there's always um, biases, there's always motivations that... That, that guide how people record history. Okay, so, um, so we don't know what to do with Queen Vashti um, if we are to look for her in secular historical records. The same thing is true for Esther, even more so for Esther, because she is supposedly taken and, and made queen, and she, does, she, she has no royal heritage. She's not taken from a noble family, and a Persian king would have only taken a queen from a uh, from a noble or royal family, sometimes even within their own family, um, because the role of queen wasn't, wasn't like someone that you fell in love with. It wasn't someone that you were like, like uh, physically attracted to. That's, that was the role of the concubine, right? Uh, the role of queen was usually more of a political role, and you married the queen for political reasons, okay? And so for a Persian king to take you know, a common Jewish girl like Esther and make her queen um, again, the secular historian would be like, there's no way that would happen, right? So both Vashti and Esther pose challenges for us if we're trying to uh, reconcile them with secular history. A couple things, though. Uh, most of what we know from secular records during this time are based on, on Greek historical record-keeping, and primarily from one guy named uh, Herodotus. Herod- I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Herodotus. Um, here's the thing about ancient history, um, and even modern history, I think, in some ways. Uh, history is always written or rewritten by, th- by the winners, right, by the conquering nations. Um, and those conquering nations oftentimes have, have a bone to pick. Those conquering nations aren't usually, especially, especially in, in ancient times when there's no one to, to argue, there's no one to, to provide, you know, a different version of events. Um, the, the, the Greeks had very little reason to paint the Persians in a positive light. And the only record, the only historical records we have of the Persians come from, from primarily Greek sources. So a lot of what we read from Herodotus is, is very unflattering of Persian culture and Persian customs, and we're going to read some of that. And, and so even a secular historian would say, uh, you know, we have to take this with a grain of salt. Um, they're not going to record everything. They're going to record the things that make their empire look superior because that's what they want history to remember. They're going to record things and make up things that make their enemies look like barbarians or savages or morally inferior in some way. Uh, that's just what we have to work with, right? So, so there's that. And also, I would say, even if, even if what we have is accurate, um, secular history and archaeology has a habit of catching up with the Bible, and I love it. I love it because decades ago, um, critics critics of the Bible would say uh, a man named Pontius Pilate never existed. If he was truly governor of Jerusalem at that time, and he was really as important as the Bible made him seem, we would know. We would have records. And so for for decades, they would say, there's no way that's true. He's not real. And then archaeology, I don't know when it was. It was relatively recently, like within the last few decades, um, uncovered a seal bearing uh, the name of Pontius Pilate, right? Same thing happens with King David. For the longest time, people were like, well, if David really had that, that massive of an empire and all that wealth, and he, if he had that much military victory, surely we would have heard about him from other, other cultures, or other nations. He could not possibly have existed because the archaeological record does not bear it out. And what happens, you know, eventually we find archaeological proof that a Jewish king named David did exist. And on and on we could go. Even Jesus, you know, so many people even today want to doubt that Jesus even existed. But, but historical records bear out a, a man named Jesus did, in fact, exist 2,000 years ago and, and amassed a following. And He was, in fact, crucified, and his body is missing. You know, all those things are attested to now by history. So history and archaeology have a habit of catching up with the Bible. So... When someone comes at you and they're like, see, you know, you, you, you can't rely on this, there's just a couple of things you can mention. Um, it also helps us to acknowledge that the literary intent of a book or a passage, um, the literary intent of the original author um, is important in how we read it and how we understand it. We're not sure who wrote Esther. Most traditions think it was Mordecai himself. He never claims that, and the book of Esther does not claim that for itself, but it's, it's a pretty safe assumption, I think. But anytime we study the, book of the a book of the Bible, we do well to keep in mind the literary intent of that book and how that can dramatically affect how we understand um, the historical role of these books. So let me give you an example. Um, do we take the parables of Jesus as historical stories or are they parables? So when he's talking about the rich man and Lazarus or the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, are these things that actually happened? And he's saying, here's something that happened last Tuesday or a year ago. It's possible. It's possible. But that's not how they're presented. The scripture presents them as parables. And a parable is a story that has um, earthly elements, but a heavenly truth tied to it, right? Um, We don't read the book of Romans the same way we read the book of Psalms, right? If you're reading those two books the same way, then you are missing out on so much because the book of Romans is very intentionally and very obviously this rich and deep theological um, doctrinal, uh, just like, like, it's like Paul's Theology 101, right? He's just, he's just getting into systematic theology of, of, of how the believer should live, of how we understand uh, truths about our faith and salvation. Um, and the authors of Psalms are not setting out to do that. The authors of Psalms, a lot of times, they're, they're venting their emotions, they're writing worship songs. They're writing poetry for God. They're asking God the difficult questions about life. And they will say things as they are venting, and they will ask things as they are frustrated that theologically we would say are not correct. Because Jesus says you, should not, um, you shouldn't curse your enemies. You should bless them. In fact, you should pray for them. And David prays for his enemies, but not in the way Jesus says to, right? So we don't get theological, doctrinal depth from the Psalms, but boy, do they give us a platform and an avenue to, to let our heart cry known to God. So both have value, but we read them differently, and they, they ask us to read them differently. So all that to say, how is Esther asking us to read it? Um, unlike, let's say, like the book of First and Second Chronicles, if you read through First and Second Chronicles it's very obviously a historical record. Like, here's what happened, here's when it happened, here's who was on the throne, right? Next thing, here's what happened, here's when it happened. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like, like a documentary. Um, Esther kind of fits more into an ancient genre of literature that they call a court tale. Um, and a court tale is, was very often uh, a story that was based on historical events and used historical people but sometimes embellished a little bit, um, or just added some creative flair uh, to make the point more effective or more memorable. So it would be the equivalent of, and I I, I never know what the right way to say this word is. Is it biopic or biopic? Does anyone know? Am I saying the same thing? Biopic. biopic. Sometimes it's like biopic or biopic. Anyways. You guys are okay. Uh, so, like, a biopic um, is usually a movie about a historical figure or a historical event, um, and, uh, and the best ones are the ones that handle their subject matter with integrity, right? They're saying these are the things that happened. They might change a few th- a few details. They might change like the timing of things or or things like that. Um, but they're trying to present what happened in history. In a way that is more memorable than if you were watching like a documentary. So my favorite western movie of all time is Tombstone. Have you guys seen Tombstone? Great movie. I, I will recommend that one. Okay, I won't recommend 300. I will recommend Tombstone. Um, the first time I watched Tombstone, I, I had no idea. I, 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 didn't re- I thought it was just a movie. I thought it was just, just a western and, and so I was like, this is, this is really cool. And then I went back and, and did some research as a kid, and I ended up doing one of my high school research projects on the Battle of the O.K. Corral and Wyatt Earp and all those guys, and I realized so much of what's in that movie actually happened. The vast majority of it actually happened, and that made it so much so much cooler to me, so much more memorable. Like, wow. And, and the things that were changed they were usually changed just to kind of fit the whole thing within, you know, like a timeline for a movie so, they didn't go, so it didn't go too long or just to make it more streamlined, all right? Um, does that mean that people like Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday didn't exist? Does that mean that there was never a battle at the O.K. Corral like the movie depicts? No, in fact, the movie depicts that, that gunfight very accurately to what historians have found And I remember the the events and the people from history far more effectively from that movie than I would have simply by watching a documentary or reading about it in a book, okay? It doesn't negate the truth of what happened. Uh, And so um, regardless of where you put Esther in terms of literary genre, is it a historical documentary or is it a court drama, like a kind of like a a biopic. Um, It does not negate the truth of what happened. It does not negate the reliability of God's word. It does not negate that we believe and hold to be true that these people actually existed and that these events in some form actually happened. Does that make sense? So um, that's a lot to go through, and I realize that. But um, as I was preparing for tonight and studying, you know, more and more came up that would you know, we, we just always have to be ready, guys. We, we always have, have to be ready for the, the attacks on God's Word, the, the attempts to undermine the, re, the reliability of, of Scripture. Um, and sometimes um, sometimes these kinds of things can kind of throw us. So I wanted to just kind of go over some of that real quickly, or, or real slowly, I guess. But All right. Um, some theological themes that we're going to look at, not just tonight, but as we go through the, the entire book um, Nowhere in the book of Esther is God mentioned. Um, he's not even like, like the covenant, I mean, like, like, like nothing is said about God or, 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 or even implied. There's, there's kind of a vague possible implication when Mordecai tells Esther, who knows that you were brought to this position for such a time as this. That's like the verse that everyone knows from Esther. That's like the most explicit reference to God we have, which is not very explicit at all, all right? So, God is not mentioned. None of his names that we see in all the other books of of Scripture are referred to. Um, He's not blamed or given credit for any of the things that happen, okay? However, I believe that one of the points that we're going to see is that even when God seems hidden or absent, what we see in Esther is that he is still faithful to his covenant. He's still faithful to protect and provide for his people. And for us, that means that even when we can't see or feel God, so often, so often our faith gets to this place where, man, if I don't feel God with me, then he must have abandoned me. If I don't have that, in in, in youth ministry, we call this like the the summer camp experience, right? When you go to a summer camp and you, you come back and you're on that, that spiritual high, and you're like, wow, God's so real. He's so cool. He's so awesome. I, w- I just want to live every day for God. And I can't tell you guys how many times I've been on mission trips and youth retreats and summer camps and the kids get all, and the adults, like all of us, we get so pumped up and, 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 and we come home, like just ready to like, you know, go hardcore for the gospel. And then like two weeks later, like what happens, right? Like everyone's just kind of back to normal, Everyone's back to their routine because they don't have that same, like, spiritual high. And sometimes if our faith depends on feeling God's presence 24-7, then it's not really faith. And your faith your faith is in jeopardy if it depends on feeling like God is there all the time. Because there will absolutely be times where you feel like God's not there. And... For God's people, it wasn't just a season or a few months or even a few years. It was decades where God was silent to them. doesn't mean he was silent, but they could not feel him, and they didn't have the prophets speaking for him. They didn't have the kings that, that, were, that were leading them. Okay? It felt like God was absent, and in, in our own lives, we will go through seasons where it feels like God is just ignoring us or silent but he is always working for our good. And he is always working in the background and behind the scenes to fulfill the promises he has made for us. Um, Another theme that we will see is that it takes courage and obedience to take the opportunities that God brings to us, to be used by him to further his ultimate plan. That's the whole thing about Esther being in that position for such a time as this At first, if you guys remember the story, she was kind of scared. She didn't want to put her neck out there to possibly get get killed. Um, It took courage. It takes obedience. When God puts you in a position to use you in a mighty and powerful way, it's almost never convenient. Scripturally speaking, it's never convenient. It's never in your comfort zone. It always takes courage and obedience when God's ready to use you, when he's saying, okay, now is the time that I've been preparing you for. Here it is. All right. It's almost always out of your comfort zone. Uh, and then God's plan and his glory are inevitable. Um, they are going to happen. And we can choose. He gives us the choice to be a part of it or to get left out. And that's essentially what Mordecai tells Esther at, at, at one point. He says, look, whether by you or someone else, God's going to save his people. Again, he doesn't mention God himself. You know, he says the people will be saved. Um, um, but but if, if, if you choose to back down, if, if it's not you, don't think that you're going to be spared. Don't think that, that somehow you will escape the fate of your people just because you're the queen. Um, and in our lives, I think it's, it's, it's profoundly beautiful, and we take it for granted so much that God wants to use us. I've said so many times, he, he could get things done so much more efficiently without us if he just did it himself. But he takes joy and pleasure in using his children, and he gives us the choice. And if we choose to, to, to allow fear or anxiety or pride or laziness to keep us from those moments, he's going to use someone else. His will's going to happen. Um, we might just get left out of it. Okay, so those are some of the theological or application themes that I hope we will see in the book of Esther. Now let's get to the actual book of Esther. Here we go. Uh, Verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. History bears that out, by the way. That is testified to by secular history as well. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Medea, the nobles and the princes of, of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So, 180 days... Uh, that's six months that's about six months, so King Ahasuerus throws this huge celebration for six months for half a year, and all like the big wigs are there, all the the the, the rulers and the and the, the nobles and the princes um, and these these long extended celebrations were not uncommon, um, but they weren't just for any reason, and a lot of historians believe that maybe Ahasuerus was trying to rally support. For his plan to invade Greece. So we know again from history that eventually he tries to invade Greece and overthrow. So maybe he's taking these six months to kind of um, show off how wealthy and powerful he is. Like, look, look at the, the power of Persia, look at the wealth of Persia, look at what we can accomplish um, if we rally together and extend our, 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 our borders even further. Okay, so it's possible that this is the beginning of his military campaign, trying to rally his people together. Um, we're not sure. That's a possibility. We know from scripture that King Hezekiah does a similar thing in Second Kings chapter twenty. It's not necessarily for a military reason, but um, when he's visited by Babylonian officials and. Um, He's super excited for some reason, and he takes them, and he shows them the armory. He shows them the royal treasure. He shows them the temple treasure, um, and God frowns upon that severely, uh, and that ends up being kind of like the the thing that that begins to lead to the Babylonian captivity because these Babylonians saw the wealth that was in in Jerusalem, Um, and so it was common for... For rulers to try and show off their power and their wealth. Um, king Ahasuerus just takes six months to do it. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel from great to small, and the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of the fine linen and purple on silver rods, and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white, and black and marble. Um, and they served drinks in golden vessels, each, ve- each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. So I think we have these verses because the king's showing off, right? Um, and he's, he just finishes a six-month feast for all of his rulers, and then he's going to do like a week-long feast for all the common folk, right? So it's like for everyone else that got left out, we'll let you party too, but just for a week. And they have access to the palace. And you can just read just the indulgence, just the, um, the excess of wealth that the king is showing off. Um, all of these things that are listed, uh, you know, the Scripture goes out of its way to record these colors and these materials because those... Those were the signs of wealth. Those weren't the, the kinds of things that just anyone had access to. That was, that was signs, those were signs of immense wealth. Um, and then in verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And so uh, Herodotus records that it was the custom of the Persians. And again, he was Greek, so you got to, we're not sure how accurate this was. But he says that the Persian custom was, if you were invited to a royal feast, you were expected to drink nonstop, or at least to drink as much as the king drank. Like, it was not a choice. Um, and if the king wanted you to be drunk, then you had to get drunk. And in fact, and again, this, this kind of ventures into, you know, how, how true could this be? Um, so the, 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 the Greek historians painted the Persians in their drinking habits as such. They said that no important decisions were made unless the Persians were drunk first. So when they were trying to make a new rule or a new law or decide if they were going to go to war or or whatever, all the rulers and officials would first get drunk and then decide, and then they would confirm that choice after they got sober. Um, And they would make no important decisions unless they were drunk first. Um, We could see if that were true why things went the way that they did, for them, but, um, but we don't know if that's true or not. Again, that seems kind of far-fetched. It could be. Uh, just another example that we got to take ancient histor- historical records with a grain of salt. Uh, whatever the case, um, uh, the king was not going to force everyone here to get drunk, but he himself did not hold himself to any limitations. It says in verse 10, uh, not, not verse 10, I'm sorry. Verse, let's go to verse 9. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so again, he didn't hold back. He, he drank enough to where he was drunk. Um, he commanded Mehuman and Biztha, Harbona, Biktha, Abagatha, Zithar, and Carcass. If I'm wrong on these names, I'm sure you guys will let me know. Um, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. And so it seems like after the six months of showing off his wealth and power, and the seven days of, you know, his showing off to the common folk, uh, and now he's drunk and very just, you know, his heart is merry, he has one more thing to show off. And this is this kind of gives us a clue, a preliminary clue into why Queen Vashti probably responded the way she did, um, because he's in this mode of "Look how great I am! Look how much power and wealth I have!" And it's in that context that he says, "Now let me also show off my queen and how beautiful she is." And the the implication when it says um, that she was that he. Um, it says in verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people. The implication is that she's only wearing her royal crown, right? And so um, he's making a very immodest request of the queen to come and appear with wearing only her crown before all of his drinking buddies and before all the people um, just to kind of show her off. So... Uh, It says in verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused, and probably rightly so. If that's really how it went down, then I would say rightly so. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Um, There has been some debate about that, about the actual nature of his request. We won't get into all the different opinions about that. Um, A lot of people... A lot of people like to take this and, 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 and make it into some kind of teachable moment about husband and wife relationships um, and, and the new covenant commands about marital roles and you know submitting to your husbands and all those things. That is not what scripture is trying to, to do here. Like, th- this is not the context for those conversations. Um, uh, I think it's very clear Scripture that the king's intentions were not godly, and so just as a little aside, any attempt to take this story to to reinforce you know wives you should submit to your husbands and, um, is is a gross misuse of scripture. Um, if if this request is what we what what, what I would think it is, um, then um, then Vashti did did the right thing. Although again, Scripture does not go to any length to tell us God approved or disapproved. We have there's there's nothing here that says whose side God is on in this. All this this whole narrative, all it does um, in Scripture is provide a platform for God to work. The only thing this is doing is saying, um, you know, we have these these events in in history, these socio political intrigues or. Or, or scandals, or things that happen, and, and, and they happen throughout history. And if God had not chosen to use this for his purposes, this probably also would have been just forgotten to history. And it should bring us comfort to know that as we live in, in, in this world, and as we see, um, maybe not the same thing, but as we see similarly just kind of vain things happening around us, we see the scandals of our politicians, we see the moral decline of our culture, we see all these things, um, we can take comfort in knowing that, first of all, that's been going on forever, but secondly, to know that God can at any point intervene and use something scandalous uh, to, 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 to bring his plan to further fruition, to create a platform for him to work. And I believe that's what we have this here in Esther for, not to take sides who was right, who was wrong, um, but because God's going to redeem even this to bring more glory to himself. Then the king said to the wise men who understood, who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all, those, toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina and there's all these names. I'm not going to read all the names. The seven princes of Persia and, and Medea who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. So basically, the king is going to go to these lawyers. He's going to be like, what should I do? The queen just insulted me. I'm angry. What should I do? What shall we do to Queen Vashti, according to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? This is kind of, this, their response here is almost humorous, if it weren't so pathetic. And Membukhan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So he's saying, it's not just you that's offended. Now, she's, she's, she's attacking everyone. Everyone's going to be affected by this. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they, when, when they report. King Ahasuerus has commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. So they're like, once all the women in the kingdom find out that the queen disobeyed you, then they're going to disobey their husbands too. It's like is that really how that works? I feel like I feel like they, they've had too much to drink. Okay. Um, this very day the noble ladies of Persia and this very day, this very day the noble ladies of Persia and Medea will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the, of the behavior of the queen, thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes. So that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. So, again, they're they're worried that um, I mean, I mean, who, who who among the women in the kingdom is is, is greater than the queen, and if the queen can disobey her husband, then, then all of our women are going to start disobeying us too, you know, and they're kind of panicking, and, and I'm, I think it's funny that they say, um, thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. I wonder whose contempt and wrath they're worried about, but anyways. Um, and the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Membukhan then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, in other words, in their own dialect or their own language, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So there again, that's, that's why I was saying earlier, this is not something that we would say um, is, is really supportive of what the New Testament tells us about, you know, divinely appointed marital roles. Um, uh, this is motivated out of fear. This is motivated out of insecurity. This is motivated out of a desire, or I should say, a fear of losing control or the illusion of control, right? Um, and the, the, the new covenant roles given to us by the Lord are motivated by what? By love, by love and a desire to conform closer and closer to the image of Christ. Not because we're afraid of wrath, not because we're afraid that we're not going to have control anymore, uh, but because we're told to love as Christ loves. So it's important that we don't, because I've, I've read some, some commentaries that were like, you know, their, their heart was in the right place. Like, I don't think their heart was in the right place. I don't think their motivation was to honor God and to become more like the Lord in this I think their heart was just based in fear. Anyways, it's secondary to the point of the book, but um, I wanted to point that out anyway. So all this, the whole chapter one is just meant, again, to set the stage for how God is about to work, how God is about to bring uh, rescue and salvation and justice to his people as his covenant promises have led him to do time and time again. Uh, So that is chapter one. Uh, Next week, Pastor Brian will be sharing chapters two and three. And we'll get to meet Esther and a few other of the figures in this story. So uh, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you that we can hold your scripture in high regard, in the highest regard. Lord, thank you that, um, that though critics and skeptics come and go, your word remains true forever. And we can stand firmly on it. We don't have to doubt it. We don't have to to pick and choose the parts that we like or don't like. Father, all of it, every last word is reliable and fruitful for your glory um, and, and, and fruitful for our lives as well, to, to, to bring joy and focus in the direction to our lives. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that you are true to your promises, even when we don't feel you, even even when we don't um, uh, sense you, Lord, you are still working on behalf of your glory first, and then on behalf of your love for us after that. Lord, what, what a wonder. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I pray as we continue to go through this book that you would increase our understanding, give us wisdom, discernment, and, uh, and joy in, in knowing how to apply these truths we ask in Christ's name. Amen.